Listen all month as ReachMD XM157 explores The Great Debate, a special series discussing the future of public health policy in America. Jack and Jill went up the hill to fetch a pail of water. Jack fell down and broke his crown. Accident? Error? Adverse event? Should Jill be reported to the public? You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg, your host, and with me today is Dr. Don Berwick. Dr. Berwick is president and CEO of the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, or IHI. He is a clinical professor of pediatrics and healthcare policy at Harvard Medical School. He served on the Institute of Medicine's Governing Council and has been vice chair of the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force and chair of the National Advisory Council of the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality. Greetings, Dr. Berwick. It's great to have you with us at the Clinician's Roundtable. Thanks for having me, Bill. Today we're discussing struggling with medical errors. By the way, do you still have patient contact? No, unfortunately, I had to stop my practice a few years ago. I miss it desperately and hope someday I'll return. Does that affect the way you relate to those of us who are still in the trenches and what we live to on a day-to-day basis? My heart is with you. I, I practiced actively for 20 years, and uh, absolutely, that's the best part of my professional background. So uh, I think I'm still with you. Warms the cockles of my heart. (laughs) Something goes wrong. What's next? Learning. Learning. The modern view of improvement of safety and avoiding defects is to learn from what happens. Every defect is a treasure, the Japanese say. We have to have transparency, curiosity, trust, and then learn. Transparency appears in multiple contexts. Could you explain your view of transparency? For better or worse, I'm an extremist on transparency. I've come there through many years of uh, hard thinking and hard knocks. Uh, you see, I don't think the workforce in healthcare, or for, frankly, in any other industry, wants to do wrong. They want to do right. They want to. They want to help. But things do go wrong. They go wrong because the systems we work in are broken. They're frail because we're human. We're frail, and the job of continually improving safety is the never-ending search for better designs that are safer to work in by good-hearted people. But you can't start if you don't know how you're doing. And so the ability to reveal defects, to reveal hazards, to reveal injuries to each other and to patients and families, and then get about the job of understanding them, it's, it's a don't-pass-go problem. We have to be transparent. Because there's such naivete about the causes of injuries in healthcare, so many bad theories about it, we end up in a blame game instead and a litigious you know, lawsuit game. And that's made everybody frightened. And so transparency seems like uh, the stupidest thing to do. It's actually the smartest. I'd like to follow up on that blame game. What is your opinion of blameless culture versus just responsibility? You have to do it sort of proportionately. Uh, let's take something that goes wrong. A patient dies who didn't have to. A complication occurs that was avoidable. Why did it happen? Well, a very, very small percentage of the time, it's going to be less than 1% in American healthcare. Somebody did something bad and knew it. There was a saboteur or perhaps a person who needs counseling or help. You can actually trace it to a culprit. And we have to act promptly on that. I, I am really fed up with medical staffs that tolerate a known miscreant for too long on defending some due process when they actually ought to be protecting patients more quickly. We have to act quickly on that. But that's only 1%, Bill. That's 1%. Most of the time we hurt people. It's good people trying their hardest in systems that are broken or frail and that can support good work. In that case, the job is to learn that it happened and then proceed promptly to do the improvements in the systems that will support all the other workers. Talking about systems, Dr. Tom Delbanco and Sigal Bell wrote an article that just appeared recently in the New England Journal of Medicine, Guilty, Afraid, and Alone, Struggling with Medical Error. 
what can we as a system, as a really an institution, do to help families that are affected by an adverse event? Well, the guilty, afraid, and alone refers to both victims. I was going to uh, get to that. <laughs> you have, I mean, when something goes wrong in healthcare, usually, almost always, there's an injured patient and family. They have a pressure sore they didn't need, an infection they didn't need, an operative complication or death, and they're suffering. They're suffering deeply. Whether or not they know that it was an error that did it, they're suffering, and they need healing. We are healers, and we need to work with that as our primary goal. But there's a second injured party, and that is the doctor, the nurse, the pharmacist, the manager, who knows that they are suddenly wrapped up in a defect they name is associated with. They, they feel like they caused it, and they feel awful, too. Careers are ruined. Self-esteem is damaged. Depression occurs. We're in tears because we did it. Uh, and, and a healing society with a healing healthcare system will heal both injured parties, the people who were affected by the injury as patients and the people who are affected by having been involved in the injury as caregivers, and we've got to attend to both. I mean, one thing I was going to ask you is, by the name they picked, medically induced trauma, I mean, doesn't that sound like kind of we're waving the guilty sign? You know, honesty matters. Uh, that is the first step and solution of a problem is to name the problem. Medically induced trauma is exactly what it says, and it's true, and it's there, and it's common. And that is, we did something to try to help the patient, and because something went wrong, either an error or something that, that is involved in a, a complication of the procedure, we heard it is medically induced, it is trauma, and now we and the patient both need support. I actually think naming the beast is the first step to conquering the beast, so I'm not for mincing words on that one. Okay. I'd like to stop for a moment and welcome those who are just joining us at the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg, and with me today is Dr. Don Berwick, President and CEO of the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. We're discussing struggling with medical errors. The errors occurred. We need to do something about it. There's a program called Sorry Works. In my mind, there's a difference between saying I'm sorry and asking for and getting forgiveness. How do you feel about those issues, and how would you approach this if you're the doctor? We need a lot of courage right now, given the ambient blame-oriented environment, but, you know, we're two human beings, the doctor and the patient, the nurse and the patient. We're humans in whole relationship. And when I hurt someone, when I step on their toe or I bump them or I didn't mean to do it, but I did it, I say, I'm sorry. I apologize. And I am sorry. And I do apologize. All we're asking in healthcare is to bring the same interpersonal human relationship into the consulting room with us. And when the patient is hurt, we say, I'm sorry, I apologize. I don't see anything wrong with that, not in the long run, not for helping the people who come to us for help. And you know, when you ask patients who are injured, some of whom later bring lawsuits, what they really wanted, and what, by the way, might have avoided the lawsuit, they say the same thing over and over again. I wanted somebody to say they were sorry. I wanted an apology. I want someone to acknowledge that I was injured and that they feel sorry about it, and then I want them to promise, if they can, never, ever to do that to another person. Uh, that, that's a healing act, and we need to bring that healing into the system. Are there any support services for patients, for families, that are affected by an adverse event? There's a lot of innovation going on internationally, by the way, on this, but one of the really bright spots is an or a new organization several years old called Medically Induced Trauma Support Services, MITSS. You can find it at MITSS.org. It was started by two really courageous people, a patient, Linda Kenny, who had a simple operative procedure and a cardiac arrest during the procedure due to a medication error. She was injured, she was resuscitated, and survived, but with very serious uh, psychological damage for a while, depression and reactions to this. And eventually she sought out and connected with the anesthesiologist that had committed the error, Rick Van Pelt. Rick very courageously got together with Linda and they began exploring each other's experience, discovering how injured both were, how angry both were, 
uh, Rickett himself, Linda, at the system, and, and they began to think that healing was their job. And they formed this organization, which now reaches out all over the nation to help patients and families and caregivers involved in such injuries to recover. Medically-induced trauma support services does exactly what it says. It's a brilliant program, and I hope it's replicated many, many times. Is there any way of exporting that? Do they have any programs where people go into hospitals or even medical schools would be the ideal place to do this and kind of teach what they've learned? Absolutely. Linda Kenny and Rick Van Pelt will teach anywhere they're invited. But more than that, I think they're at the crest of a wave here. I do think this growing awareness that injuries occur, that they can be avoided, and that we have to get together, caregivers and patients, to make the system safer. And that begins with apology, transparency, and meeting each other. Uh, I think that's an idea whose time has come. You're going to see this replicated fast, and I, I hope hospitals and physicians and nurses reach out for this advice uh, fast and use it right away. A lawyer friend asked me, he said, why do doctors keep shooting themselves in the foot? The vice president of the United States shoots his friend and it's called an accident. It's not even an adverse event. Why in medicine do we start out with the term error before we know what happened? There is a difference between an accident and an error. Oh, I don't go with his comment at all. I mean, look, the, the, the main point here is injury. It's not accident or error. They come to healthcare for help and then they get hurt. What do you want to call that? That's an injury. It's an injury from the care. Whether it's an error or an accident or a complication, it's all the same. And our job as clinicians is to reduce continually that burden, continually that burden. That means calling it an injury, working on on everything we can to avoid it, and not worrying about the fine-tuning about exactly what the word is we use to apply to it. We shouldn't hurt people when they come to us, and it's a never-ending, forever quest to make that rate go down. Human value is certainly very important, the value of the individual. Can we really go further in patient safety without sort of buoying up the individuals, making them feel important again? And I'm talking about everybody in the system from the transporter to the person who works in the kitchen to the person in the pharmacy. Don't we have to do something to enhance their human spirit? Joy in work is an essential precondition to the improvement of work. It can involve everyone. It needs to. Think of why getting universal involvement improvement could be so powerful. First, everybody has eyes and brains. That transport worker out there, that nurse, that doctor, that that manager, that pharmacist, they're all seeing things all day long. And we waste knowledge. We waste intelligence when we don't ask them, what did you see? What do you think? What ideas have you got? And pull them in. Second, it's much more fun at work when you get the opportunity to change your work. People can invest in, in controlling their environments and really making work be what it wants to be. The last and most important aspect here, though, is the concept of teamness. The days of the individual hero are pretty much over in healthcare. It's just too complicated. If it ever was here, it's gone. We help patients as teams, interdependent groups of actors supporting each other, learning from each other. And, and this integrated view, it means you cross the boundaries. You, you hang up your white coat for a little while and sit together with the team that's taking care of that patient and figure out how this is going to go better day after day. So yes, total involvement, total participation, that's, that's a really important asset in, in getting to the care we need. What would you do to change the compensation. Oh, your 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 listeners aren't going to like my answer. Uh, That's okay. Okay, <laughs> controversy is good. Yeah, uh, we threw a baby out in the bathwater with managed care. The original concepts in the fifties and sixties and seventies, Paul Elwood and others came up with this idea that what we really need to do is manage care, small m, small c. We're going to have to do this together. In I think in prepaid systems, best of all, that are organized under some single roof. What we need, and I know it's a dirty word, is the HMO back. I mean the good HMO, the kind where health maintenance is the point, where we're doing it all together, and where you're part of a, of a group of colleagues that struggle 
day after day to meet the needs of a population, but do it all together. With a budget, by the way, that you can control and move around. If you want to hire a home health aide instead of a new cardiologist, you can do that. It's a tough nut in our country. We have to rediscover managed care. I, I say there wasn't a baby in that bathwater. There were triplets. And the trouble is <laughs> we, just, uh, we just lost it. And uh, somehow I, I hope we have some political leadership to figure out a way to explain this to the public and the professions in a way that we all can re-embrace. I wish I could figure out how to do that because that is the answer. Well, hopefully some of our audience will put their thinking caps on and maybe send you some suggestions because I agree with you 100%. Unfortunately, our time has flown by. And so, Dr. Berwick, I would like to thank you very much for being so gracious in being our guest. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your comments and questions. Please visit us at ReachMD.com and explore our on-demand and podcast features, which gives you access to our entire program library. Thank you for listening to ReachMD XM 157 and The Great Debate, a month-long special series and discussion on the future of public health policy in America.